Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike, to episode 151 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. During this odd-numbered episode, we continue through the long compendium of The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This week, Watson is on his honeymoon, for he has recently gotten married. And so this case is not told from the perspective of Watson, but from none other than Sherlock Holmes himself. So let us read his perspective of the case he entitles, The Adventure of the Blanched Soldier, Part 1, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Content Warning. The following reading contains profanity. The ideas of my friend Watson, though limited, are exceedingly pertinacious. For a long time he has worried me to write an experience of my own. Perhaps I have rather invited this persecution, since I have often had occasion to point out to him how superficial are his own accounts, and to accuse him of pandering to popular taste instead of confining himself rigidly to facts and figures. Try it yourself, Holmes, he has retorted, and I am compelled to admit that, after having taken my pen in my hand, I do begin to realize that the matter must be presented in such a way as may interest the reader. The following case can hardly fail to do so, as it is among the strangest happenings in my collection, though it chanced that Watson had no note of it in his collection. Speaking of my old friend and biographer, I would take this opportunity to remark that if I burden myself with a companion in my various little inquiries, it is not done out of sentiment or caprice, but it is that Watson has some remarkable characteristics of his own, to which, in his modesty, he has given small attention amid his exaggerated estimates of my own performances. A confederate who foresees your conclusions and course of action is always dangerous, but one to whom each development comes as a perpetual surprise, and to whom the future is always a closed book, is indeed an ideal helpmate. I find from my notebook that it was in January 1903, just after the conclusion of the Boer War, that I had my visit from Mr. James M. Dodd a big, fresh, sunburned, upstanding Briton. The good Watson had at that time deserted me for a wife, the only selfish action which I can recall in our association. I was alone. It is my habit to sit with my back to the window and to place my visitors in the opposite chair where the light falls full upon them. Mr. James M. Dodd seemed somewhat at a loss how to begin the interview. I did not attempt to help him, for his silence gave me more time for observation. I have found it wise to impress clients with a sense of power, and so I gave him some of my conclusions. From South Africa, sir, I perceive. Yes, sir, he answered with some surprise. Imperial Yemenry, I fancy? Exactly. Middlesex Corps, no doubt. That is so, Mr. Holmes. You are a wizard. I smiled at his bewildered expression. When a gentleman of viral appearance enters my room with such tan upon his face as an English son could never give, 
and with his handkerchief in his sleeve instead of in his pocket, it is not difficult to place him. You wear a short beard, which shows that you are not a regular. You have the cut of a riding man. As to Middlesex, your card has already shown me that you are a stockbroker from Throgmorton Street. What other regiment would you join? You say everything. I see no more than you, but I have trained myself to notice what I see. However, Mr. Todd, it was not to discuss the science of observation that you called upon me this morning. What has been happening at Tuxbury Old Park? Mr. Holmes, I... My dear sir, there is no mystery. Your letter came with that heading, and as you fixed this appointment in very pressing terms, it was clear that something sudden and important had occurred. Yes, indeed. But the letter was written in the afternoon, and a good deal has happened since then. If Colonel Emsworth had not kicked me out, I... Kicked you out? Well... That was what it amounted to. He is a hard nail, is Colonel Emsworth, the greatest martinet in the army in his day, and it was a day of rough language, too. I couldn't have stuck the Colonel if it had not been for Godfrey's sake. I lit my pipe and leaned back in my chair. Perhaps you will explain what you are talking about. My client grinned mischievously. I had gotten a way of supposing that you knew everything without being told, said he. But I will give you the facts, and I hope to God that you will be able to tell me what they mean. I've been awake all night puzzling my brain, and the more I think, the more incredible does it become. When I joined up in January 1901, just two years ago, Young Godfrey Emsworth had joined the same squadron. He was Colonel Emsworth's only son, Emsworth, the Crimean VC, and he had the fighting blood in him, so it is no wonder he volunteered. There's not a final lad in the regiment. We formed a friendship, the sort of friendship which can only be made when one lives the same life and shares the same joys and sorrows. He was my mate, and that means a good deal in the army. We took the rough and the smooth together for a year of hard fighting. Then he was hit with a bullet from an elephant gun in the action near Diamond Hill outside Pretoria. I got one letter from the hospital at Cape Town and one from Southampton. Since then, not a word, not one word, Mr. Holmes. For six months and more, and he, my closest pal. Well, when the war was over, and we all got back, I wrote to his father and asked where Godfrey was. No answer. I waited a bit, and then I wrote again. This time, I had a reply, short and gruff. Godfrey had gone on a voyage round the world and it was not likely that he would be back for a year. That was all. I wasn't satisfied, Mr. Holmes. The whole thing seemed to me so damned unnatural. He was a good lad, and he would not drop a pal like that. It was not like him. Then again, I happened to know that he was heir to a lot of money, and also of that his father, 
and he did not always hit it off too well. The old man was sometimes a bully, and young Godfrey had too much spirit to stand it. No, I wasn't satisfied, and I determined that I would get to the root of the matter. It happened, however, that my own affairs needed a lot of straightening out after two years' absence, and so it was only this week that I had been able to take up Godfrey's case again. But since I have taken it up, I mean to drop everything in order to see it through. Mr. James M. Dodd appeared to be a sort of person who it would be better to have as a friend than as an enemy. His blue eyes were stern, and his square jaw had set hard as he spoke. Well, what have you done? I asked. My first move was to get down to his home, Tuxbury Old Park, near Bedford, and to see for myself how the ground lay. I wrote to his mother, therefore. I had quite enough of the curmudgeon of a father, and I made a clean frontal attack. Godfrey was my chum, and I had a great deal of interest which I might tell her of our common experiences. I should be in the neighbourhood. Would there be any objection, etc.? In reply, I had quite an amiable answer from her, and an offer to put me up for the night. That was what took me down on Monday. Toxbury Old Hall is inaccessible, five miles from anywhere. There was no trap at the station, so I had to walk, carrying my suitcase, and it was nearly dark before I arrived. It is a great wandering house, standing in a considerable park. I should judge it was all sorts of ages and styles, starting on half-timbered Elizabethan foundation and ending in a Victorian portico. Inside, it was all panelling and tapestry and half-effaced old pictures, a house of shadows and mysteries. There was a butler, old Rafe, who seemed about the same age as the house, and there was his wife, who might have been a bit older. She had been Godfrey's nurse, and I had heard him speak of her as second only to his mother in his affections, so I was drawn to her in spite of her queer appearance. The mother I liked also, a gentle little white mouse of a woman. It was only the colonel himself whom I barred. We had a bit of Barney right away, and I should have walked back to the station if I had not felt that it might be playing his game for me to do so. I was shown straight into his steady, and there I found him, a huge bow-backed man with a smoky skin and a straggling grey beard, seated behind his littered desk. A red-veined nose jutted out like a vulture's beak, and two fierce grey eyes glared at me from under tufted brows. I could understand now why Godfrey seldom spoke of his father. Well, sir, said he in a rasping voice, I should be interested to know the real reasons for this visit. I answered that I explained them in my letter to his wife. Yes, yes, you said that you had known Godfrey in Africa. We have, of course, only your word for that. I have his letters to me in my pocket. Kindly let me see them. He glanced at the two which I handed him and then he tossed them back. Well, what then? he asked. 
I was fond of your son Godfrey, sir. Many times in memories united us. Is it not natural that I should wonder at his sudden silence, and should wish to know what has become of him? I have some recollection, sir, that I had already corresponded with you and had told you what had become of him. He has gone upon a voyage round the world. His health was in a poor way after his African experiences, and both his mother and I were of the opinion that complete rest and change were needed. Kindly pass that explanation on to any other friends who may be interested in the matter. Certainly, I answered, but perhaps you would have the goodness to let me have the name of the steamer and of the line by which he sailed, together with the date. I've no doubt that I shall be able to get a letter through to him. My request seemed both to puzzle and to irritate my host. His great eyebrows came down over his eyes, and he tapped his fingers impatiently on the table. He looked up at last with the expression of one who has seen his adversary make a dangerous move at chess, and has decided how to meet it. Many people, Mr. Dodd, said he, would take offence at your infernal pertinacity, and would think that his insistence has reached at the point of damned impertinence. You must put it down, sir, to my real love for your son. Exactly. I have already made every allowance upon that score. I must ask you, however, to drop these inquiries. Every family has its own inner knowledge and its own motives, which cannot always be made clear to outsiders, however well-intentioned. My wife is anxious to hear something of Godfrey's past, which you are in a position to tell her. But I would ask you to let the present and the future alone. Such inquiries serve no useful purpose, sir, and place us in a delicate and difficult position. So, I came to a dead end, Mr. Holmes. There was no getting past it. I could only pretend to accept the situation and register a vow inwardly, and that I would never rest until my friend's fate had been cleared up. It was a dull evening. We dined quietly, the three of us, in a gloomy, faded old room. The lady questioned me eagerly about her son, but the old man seemed morose and depressed. I was so bored by the whole proceeding that I made an excuse as soon as I decently could and retired to my bedroom. It was a large, bare room on the ground floor, as gloomy as the rest of the house, but after a year of sleeping upon the veldt, Mr. Holmes, one is not too particular about one's quarters. I opened the curtains. I looked out into the garden, remarking that it was a fine night, with a bright half moon. Then I sat down by the roaring fire, with the lamp on the table beside me, and endeavoured to distract my mind with a novel. I was interrupted, however, by Wraith, the old butler, who came in with fresh supply of coals. Thought you might run short in the night time, sir. It is bitter weather, and these rooms are cold. He hesitated before leaving the room, and when I looked round, he was standing facing me with a wistful look upon his wrinkled face. Beg your pardon, sir, but I could not help hearing what you said of Master Godfrey at dinner. You know, sir, that my wife nursed him, 
and so I may say that I am his foster father. It is natural we should take an interest. And you say he carried himself well, sir. There was no braver man in the regiment. He pulled me out once from under the rifles of the boars. Or maybe I should not be here. The old butler rubbed his skinny hands. Yes, sir, yes. That is Master Godfrey all over. He was always courageous. There's not a tree in the park, sir, that he has not climbed. Nothing would stop him. He was a fine boy. And oh, sir, he was a fine man. I sprang to my feet. Look here, I cried. You say he was? You speak as if he were dead. What is all this mystery? What has become of Godfrey Emsworth? I gripped the old man by the shoulder, but he shrank away. Uh, I don't know what you mean, sir. Ask the master about Master Godfrey. He knows. It is not for me to interfere. He was leaving the room, but I held his arm. Listen, I said. You're going to answer one question before you leave if I have to hold you all night. Is Godfrey dead? He could not face my eyes. He was like a man, hypnotized. The answer was dragged from his lips. It was a terrible and unexpected one. I wish to God he was, he cried, and tearing himself free, he dashed from the room. You will think, Mr. Holmes, that I returned to my chair in no very happy state of mind. The old man's words seemed to me to bear only one interpretation. Clearly, my poor friend had become involved in some criminal, or, at the least, disreputable transaction, which touched the family honor. That stern old man had sent his son away, and hidden him from the world lest some scandal should come to light. Godfrey was a reckless fellow. He was easily influenced by those around him, no doubt he had fallen into bad hands and had been misled to his ruin. It was a piteous business, if he was indeed so, but even now it was my duty to hunt him out and see if I could aid him. I was anxiously pondering the matter when I looked up, and there was Godfrey Emsworth standing before me. My client had paused as one in deep emotion. Pray. Continue, I said. Your problem presents some very unusual features. He was outside the window, Mr. Holmes, with his face pressed against the glass. I have told you that I looked out at the night. When I did so, I left the curtains partly open. His figure was framed in this gap. The window came down to the ground and I could see the whole length of it. But it was his face which held my gaze. He was deadly pale. Never have I seen a man so white. I reckon ghosts may look like that. But his eyes met mine, and they were the eyes of a living man. He sprang back when he saw that I was looking at him, and he vanished into the darkness. There was something shocking about the man, Mr. Holmes. 
It wasn't merely that ghastly face glimmering as white as cheese in the darkness. It was more subtle than that. Something slinking, something furtive, something guilty, something very unlike the frank manly lad that I had known. It left a feeling of horror in my mind. But when a man has been soldiering for a year or two with Brother Boar as a playmate, he keeps his nerve and acts quickly. Godfrey had hardly vanished before I was at the window. There was an awkward catch, and I was some little time before I could throw it up. Then I nipped through and ran down the garden path in the direction I thought he might have taken. It was a long path, and the light was not very good, but it seemed to me something was moving ahead of me. I ran out and called his name, but it was no use. When I got to the end of the path, there were several others branching in different directions to various outhouses. I stood, hesitating, and as I did so, I heard distinctly the sound of a closing door. It was not behind me in the house, but ahead of me, somewhere in the darkness. That was enough, Mr. Holmes, to assure me that what I had seen was not a vision. Godfrey had run away from me, and he had shut a door behind him. Of that, I was certain. There was nothing more I could do, and spent an uneasy night turning the matter over in my mind and trying to find some theory which would cover the facts. Next day, I found the colonel rather more conciliatory, and as his wife remarked that there were some places of interest in the neighbourhood, it gave me an opening to ask whether my presence for one more night would incommode them. A somewhat grudging acquiescence from the old man gave me a clear day in which to make my observations. I was already perfectly convinced that Godfrey was in hiding somewhere near, but where and why remained to be solved. The house was so large and so rambling that a regiment might be hidden away in it and no one the wiser. If the secret lay there, it was difficult for me to penetrate it. But the door which I had heard close was certainly not in the house. I must explore the garden and see what I could find. There's no difficulty in the way, for the old people were busy in their own fashion and left me to my own devices. There were several small outhouses, but at the end of the garden there was a detached building of some size, large enough for a gardener's or a gamekeeper's residence. Could this be the place whence the sound of that shutting door had come? I approached it in a careless fashion, as though I was strolling aimlessly round the ground. As I did so, a small, brisk, bearded man in a black coat and a bowler hat, not at all the gardener type, came out of the door. To my surprise, he locked it after him and put the key in his pocket. Then he looked at me with some surprise on his face. Are you a visitor here? he asked. I explained that I was, and that I was a friend of Godfrey's. What a pity that he should be away on his travels, for he would have so liked to see me, I continued. Quite so, exactly, he said with rather a guilty air. No doubt you will renew your visit at some more propitious time. He passed on, but when I turned, I observed that he was standing watching me. 
half concealed by the laurels at the far end of the garden. I had a good look at the little house as I passed it, but the windows were heavily curtained, and so far as one could see, it was empty. I might spoil my own game and even be ordered off the premises if I were too audacious, for I was still conscious that I was being watched. Therefore, I strolled back to the house and waited for night before I went on with my inquiry. When all was dark and quiet, I slipped out of my window and made my way as silently as possible to the mysterious lodge. I have said that it was heavily curtained, but now I found that the windows were shuttered as well. Some light, however, was breaking through one of them, so I concentrated my attention upon this. I was in luck, for the curtain had not been quite closed, and there was a crack in the shutter so that I could see inside of the room. It was a cherry place enough, bright lamp and a blazing fire. Opposite to me was seated the little man whom I had seen in the morning. He was smoking a pipe and reading a paper. What paper? I asked. My client seemed annoyed at the interruption of his narrative. Can it matter? he asked. It is most essential. I really took no notice. Possibly you observed whether it was broadleaf paper or that of a smaller type which one associates with weeklies. Now that you mention it, it was not large. It might have been the spectator. However, I little sought to spare upon such details, for a second man was seated with his back to the window, and I could swear that the second man was Godfrey. I could not see his face, but I knew the familiar slope of his shoulders. He was leaning upon his elbow in an attitude of great melancholy, his body turned toward the fire. I was hesitating as to what I should do, when there was a sharp tap on my shoulder, and there was Colonel Emsworth beside me. This way, sir, said he in a low voice. He walked in silence to the house, and I followed him into my own bedroom. He had picked up a timetable in the hall. There is a train to London at 8.30, said he. The trap will be at the door at eight. He was white with rage, and indeed, I felt myself in so difficult a position that I could only stammer out a few incoherent apologies, in which I tried to excuse myself by urging my anxiety for my friend. The matter will not bear discussion, said he abruptly. You have made a most damnable intrusion into the privacy of our family. You are here as a guest, and you have become a spy. I have nothing more to say, sir, save that I have no wish to ever see you again. At this, I lost my temper, Mr. Holmes, and I spoke with some warmth. I have seen your son, and I am convinced that for some reason of your own, you are concealing him from the world. I have no idea what is your motives are in cutting him off in this fashion, but I am sure that he is no longer a free agent. I warn you, Colonel Emsworth, that until I am assured as to the safety and well-being of my friend, I shall never desist in my efforts to get to the bottom of a mystery, and I shall certainly not allow myself to be intimidated 
by anything which you may say or do. The old fellow looked diabolical, and I really thought he was about to attack me. I've said that he was gaunt, fierce old giant, and though I am no weakling, I might have been hard to put to it to hold my own against him. However, after a long glare of rage, he turned upon his heel and walked out of the room. For my part, I took the appointed train in the morning with the full intention of coming straight to you and asking for your advice and assistance at the appointment for which I have already written. Such was the problem which my visitor laid before me. It presented, as the astute reader will have already perceived, few difficulties in its solution, for a very limited choice of alternatives might get to the root of the matter. Still, elementary as it was, there were some points of interest and novelty about it, which may excuse my placing it upon record. I now proceeded, using my familiar method of logical analysis, to narrow down the possible solutions. End of The Adventure of the Blanched Soldier Part 1 by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Honestly, it doesn't really matter who's telling the story, whether it's Watson or Sherlock. It always sounds like they have an incredible memory. And really, the fact of the matter is, all of their clients could be storytellers in and of themselves. Because whether or not Sherlock recorded this, or he had a audio recorder in the room somehow, because I don't know if they had that kind of technology in 1903, or what the case was, but, puns, they definitely could not have put it in such tense detail as they did in that moment. Um, I mean... The gaslighting that British people do in these cases is absolutely incredible. Like, I went to college with a compulsive liar, and I kind of messed around with the guy because I knew at one point or another, eventually, that he was lying to me. And so all you got to do is continue to press upon them deeper and deeper details to get them to think on the fly and it really tests their improv ability, if I'm being honest, on how willing they are to go into their lie. But in the case of this Dodd character, he wasn't even trying to impress upon Godfrey's father that he was letting on to him and, you know, was like, eh, are you really lying or not? He straight up asked him, he's like, okay, so you say he's, he's around the world, tell me the liner... Um, when they left, and I'll get a I'll get a letter out to him, you know, so that I I can communicate with him. And then it was at that point where you were like, okay, is his father is gonna make up some random steamer, or is he going to what is he gonna do? And the father ends up just like getting really upset and flustered, as I noticed in my own experience with my friend um, when I continued to press him, um, he got flustered, um, and you know he's just changes the subject on him. What is confusing about this whole matter is that A, Godfrey exists on this estate, and B, this bullet wound, whatever kind of bullet wound it actually was, either did A, some serious mental damage to the man, 
or his parents were ashamed of him in some way and I don't know scared him so that he was perpetually in a state of looking like he's seen a ghost I I don't know man this is quite perplexing and why did Godfrey escape and peer through the window of Dodd's um, spare bedroom what is it about these people who stare through windows okay that creepy like one case where the where the lady was clear on the second floor of her room and then just sees this dude peering into her window from the second floor that was creepy but this one you know is a little bit more plausible but as i sit right now i am in a room with blackout blinds and it is nighttime it is evening and I am not about to lift up my blinds to see if there is someone just looking through my clear window, listening to me recording for some reason. Um, that would terrify me. <laughs> so currently my neighbors are shooting off fireworks, so um, you may hear that in the recording. But other than that, I mean, this case continues to these these types of cases like i don't know what british people were doing in the early 20th century to be honest but i i, I don't know what world sherlock holmes lives in but that sounds like a horrendous like time period to live where you've got people who are like holding other people for ransom you've got like predatory dudes just like um going after really young women hypnotizing them you've got like all of these like really crazy like well thought out murders where some dude figured out how to like shoot themselves and make it look like somebody else had shot them and I, like honestly like this is a messed up universe that Doyle wrote these cases in and like <laughs> I would be documenting everything in these cases too because honestly if I recounted them in oral tradition nobody would possibly believe me so I gotta hand it to Doyle for his creative imagination making the British people look like a terrible people to be a part of and to be identified with thank you so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. In two weeks, we will hopefully hear the conclusion. But until then, next week, we continue through the very convoluted plot of The Great Gatsby. We are closer and closer to nearing to the conclusion of this epic novel, where we will eventually, hopefully, find out what makes Gatsby so great? But until then, as they say in showbiz, that's all he wrote for now.